we're back. Welcome to the Media and Marketing Podcast, sponsored by MWW. First podcast of the year, and we've got a kick-ass podcast for you today. Uh, later in the podcast, we've got an interview with Sky Executive Rachel Bristow. Some nice nuggets in the interview, particularly, which was news to me, that amid all the hoo-ha about gender pay inequality at BBC, Sky has actually undertaken an audit of pay at, at Sky and found that in many cases, women are actually getting paid more than men. So women working in media, perhaps you might want to um, get yourself a job at Sky. Uh, there's also loads in there about what Sky is up to next year, so that, or this year even, so that's worth a listen. We've also got Roy Greenslade, former national newspaper editor and press guru, who's given his take on the New Look Guardian, which came out yesterday. And we've also got Paul Frampton, ex-UK CEO of Havas, on why he has started uh, vlogging. He also talks about what he's up to next, and he also has a pop at the publicist, uh, new CEO, accusing him of being digitally gullible. But before all that, we're going to have a look at some of the big stories in media and marketing at the moment, and I'm de- delighted to be joined by Matt Phillips, who is running his own consultancy in this space. Thanks very much for joining this podcast, uh, Matt. For our listeners, can you just give us a potted history of your career today? So I'm a communications consultant, and I've spent the last 20 years working in PR, initially for um, the music industry, as it was going through a rather, I suppose, turbulent time, uh, adjusting to the the challenges of digital, I think you could say. Uh, And then latterly onto the BBC, where they were additionally transforming themselves from essentially building websites about programmes to building products like iPlayer. And then more recently, I've been independent, um, working with advertising companies and many more. Okay, so we've got um, uh, a copy of the New Look Guardian uh, in front of us. What's your initial take on it? Well, first of all, are you an existing Guardian reader, reader, and did it jump out to you at the newsstands this morning? Well, you know what, I've read the Guardian for for many years. I mean, as as is well known in media, it's got a historically great track record for its media reporting. So it's 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 a publication that I sort of pay more attention to than many others. I think, if anything, it jumps out a bit less. Um, For me, just from a purely design perspective, it does feel quite like the standard. um, And it's sort of gone away from that sort of the blue masthead that we've we've come to know and love. But I think this is a redesign driven more by commercial necessity, um, given the well-documented need for them to move away from the Berliner sort of style layout. And, and, you know, I think the core thing for The Guardian is it's all about, it sounds such a cliche, but it's so true, it's great content. Um, I think they've spent many years positioning themselves as the world's leading liberal voice, and they've got a huge appetite and global demand for that kind of writing. So I wish them every success with it. I mean, print media is sort of strategically challenged, yeah. I would say, um, because of the everyone knows that the revenues have been falling not um the audiences have fallen less slowly but you know as you need to become a digital multi-platform brand you um you need you need to change and evolve so you know i think they'll they'll make a, a good success of it as you say it's it's done by a commercial uh, imperative i mean interestingly under the berliner they did have space for ads on the on the front page and the inside back which i don't think this new design will will actually carry that said they will earn millions uh, undoubtedly from selling the presses for the Berliner. I think they may have missed a trick because, as you say, it's all it's um, it's a redesign, but they haven't signed any new columnists, so it's difficult to envisage. Actually, is there anything pulling you in there to actually go out and buy it? Maybe not. Well, I think in time, um, I think if they they've got some excellent columnists already, 
Uh, I mean, I, I would like to see even more media output, which is you know a, a reversal of what we've seen in the last sort of five five years or so. But they are brilliant what they do. They they have distinctive columnists, in my opinion, um, and I think they'll sign up more and more as time goes on. As I said, this is more of a reformatting, rebranding yeah. built around the uh, the need to change the model more than a need to change the creative direction of the publication. Okay, brilliant. Okay, and now Facebook obviously made the announcement about changes to its news feed at the end of last week. I'm still slightly confused about this maybe you can some shed shed some light well, what is it is this a good thing for brands or or not then Matt? i think in the short term it's probably a bad thing for brands that produce average content on the platform uh i think the, the stepping back from it a little bit the core change that they've announced is that they want to uh, produce um, have more of the your time spent on the platform mm. w- with more friends and family and i think the reason they've made this change is because Facebook has become almost the social media equivalent of the classic email forward of 10 years ago where you get an inbox full of rubbish and stuff because so many people are on the platform and there's no effective way of filtering it. So, you know, Facebook went on a charm offensive to bring sort of more branded content uh, into the platform and more quality editorial content into the platform. But I think that's resulted in a decline in quality. And, and no, no, for me, no algorithm is ever going to replace the editorial eye of a, of a proper publication in terms of defining what I as a user want. want. And I think as long as... Facebook's primary business model is about advertising uh, and, and advertising revenues. And let's be clear, mm. they've made clear to audiences that it's always going to be a free at the point of use platform, which mm. means the audience is the product. So they they realized, I think, the, there's been, a, I suspect, a decline in engagement, a decline in quality, mm. and they've got to do something about that. Uh, and there's been a lot made of the sort of the fake news element yeah. of it and whether it's to clean that up. But really, I think it's about future-proofing Facebook as a platform. So I think brands yeah. that produce good content that resonates within communities uh, will, 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 will do all right. Those producing very average content that doesn't get much engagement will see themselves fall off a cliff. Okay, and I guess from you can see the rationale from Facebook's point of view. They're playing a the long game because if you're seeing more posts from friends and family in your news feed, obviously Facebook's business model is selling information to advertisers, so it'll be able to find out a lot more information about users if they're interacting with stuff from friends and uh, family rather than passively scrolling through ads, news and corporate stuff. So you can see where Facebook is thinking long term. And more broadly, do you think um, Facebook's obviously so massive now, it seems to be embracing its social responsibility? Um, do you think, it, uh, for want of a better, better expression, it has a duty of care to users? I mean, Facebook executives are even talking about how addictive it is. I think in some cases they're actually advising people you know, to use it in moderation too. Yeah, I think I, th- I think that last year was one of those years when um, I felt there was a real turning point um, in terms of... I suppose public opinion and political opinion towards the attitude of platforms. Yeah. I think I've spent most, for the most part of the last 20 years, I've heard sort of the narrative has been, oh, well, these platforms need to, uh, you know, they're changing, they're disrupting the way we consume. Old media has to evolve and develop new business models. And I've always found that quite uncomfortable. I think what we're finding is that social media and the large platforms are such a key part an influential part of of society and life i think they now have accepting that they have to adapt to the rule of law adapt to the ways of society Um, and and i think this is a step by facebook in that direction to 
certainly project greater social responsibility before mm. they find themselves more aggressively regulated. Mm. And I sense that the mood, music, regulation-wise, is shifting towards tighter regulation, so they need to be seen to be doing more in that regard. Okay. Um, switching tact, uh, another story. Uh, Martin Sorrell was speaking, uh, and he's talking about the future of sports broadcasting. So with your BBC hat on, what's all this about then? It's about technology and sports are converging in, in new ways, is it? Yeah, definitely. I mean, we've, we've heard for years and years that, you know, TV's dead and no one mm -hmm. watches live TV anymore, and that, that has not come to pass. That said, anecdotally, the amount of people, you know, the growth of Netflix, growth of Amazon, certainly I would say that drama on live TV is beginning to go more towards the Netflix and the Amazon. So I suppose live TV's whip hand, and with it, the opportunities for brands in terms of sponsorship, marketing, advertising, whether it's um, brand advertising or the point um, sort of sponsorships, mm -hmm. I think there's a real opportunity for, I suppose, classic advertising to align itself more closely with sport because of that live aspect sure. of it. So I, so I think it's interesting that, that of all the things that were said at CES, that's what was particularly picked up on from what Sir Martin Sorrell was saying. Mm. And he is such a bellwether for mm. what the industry is thinking and feeling. I, I think that's a, an area, as he rightly points out, is, is huge and ripe for disruption. Okay. And he also, um, as he has done before, mentioned that Google, Facebook, Amazon and, and Tencent are all eyeing rights for sports league, uh, sports rights. I mean, we are seeing some of that, aren't we? I think, um, I think Amazon's got um, the rights to the US Open tennis. Uh, Facebook looked at the Indian Premier League. There is a school of thought there. We had... Um, um, someone on the podcast who said, we're talking about the Premier League rights, we're saying that they're so expensive, it's something like 20 million, the cost of it's 20 million just to the rights for the, the UK rights of Premier League matches, that it's not, um, it's not really in, uh, directly in Facebook and Twitter's domain. So it might be, they might, they might actually pass on, um, actually bidding for these rights, and might just leave it to the broadcasters. I guess there's two schools of thought on that. Yeah, well, they certainly got deep pockets, that's for sure, but um, whether they are able to make a success of producing a sort of, multimedia hero campaign that people actually engage with. I think so far with sports and the new platforms, we've seen innovations at the margins, but as commentators like Mark Ritson have pointed out, those digital metrics are somewhat misleading and dubious. Okay. And to what extent has those innovations been literally just trying at the margins or a sign of things to come? I suspect that the traditional media companies Contain, continue to have the whip hand in terms of presenting talent, how to put great programs together, and, and they'll they'll continue to, to be dominant for a while. Okay, and finally, the story about the Conservative Party, what's happening, they're getting it wrong on their digital marketing, are they, for the younger generation? I thought this was really interesting. This came out of uh, an interview at the weekend uh, with the new chairman of the Conservative Party, and he, I think he made the point that the, the, the left, and, and um, Corbyn in particular, has had a success with social media because of the, um, I suppose it can be quite polarising and, 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 uh, and incites, I guess, immediate strong reactions from, you know, dare I say, a largely idealistic audience that, you know, I think the, the following of um, the Labour Party and its increase in membership. Uh, particularly amongst younger audiences, you know, we're all a bit more idealistic at that age. Yeah. Uh, I think there's an element of that. And I think also, you know, the Tories have a classic branding problem. You know, that, that phrase, the nasty party is stuck. Sure. And I think that uh, in order to engage a younger electorate, um, the Tories need to improve how they communicate.
It might be quite tough because, I mean, predominantly the Tories have got an older demographic of voters anyway. You would have thought it might be difficult to actually find those. They uh, have, yeah. And, it's, and, it's, and, you know, there's a question whether it's a, a, communi- a communications problem or a reality problem. And um, clearly their policies have, have struggled to resonate with younger audiences in the past. So it remains to be seen what what they could do to improve things on social. But I'm sure there are plenty of uh, experts out there that will help that will tell it show us the way. Okay, thanks a million, Matt. So where else, what else have you got coming up? Anything else? Any interesting projects at all? Or Yeah, I have. I'm working with a very interesting company at the moment, um, given what I've been saying about social, um, who are a community-based media platform. I don't know what that means. Well, community-based, if you look at... Um, Okay, well, here's the problem, right? If you're trying to find an audience um, and reach and engage an audience, you get guaranteed reach through something like email. Yeah. It's a really strong communications channel, but it's not interactive. You look at social media, your reach is not guaranteed because you have to pay for it for the reasons we've talked about sure. previously. And equally, you don't have editorial control over it. Okay. So you're seeing um, these community platforms like Amino Technologies, like Disciple Media, that are emerging and are are giving brands and are giving communities the opportunity to control the relationships with their with their audience. So, uh, interesting space. Yes, sounds like fantastic. And do stay tuned because next up we've got Roy Greenslade on The Guardian, then we've got Paul Frampton on Vlogging, and finally Rachel uh, Bristow at Sky about all what's happening at Sky this year. Thanks very much. Hello. Oh, is that Roy? It is, yeah. yeah. Hi, it's John Reynolds from the Media and Marketing Podcast. Hi. Hi, thanks for taking time out. So I, I just saw your, your tweet. Over, overall, you've been impressed, have you, by the new Look Guardian then? I like it, yeah, sure. Okay, I mean, what, what in particular? I mean, is it, I, I was a bit underwhelmed when I saw it on the newsstand. It didn't really stand out, but you think it does then? Or? Uh, well, on the newsstand, uh, I, I'll frankly admit, it took me a moment to, to find it. I was hoping that they would keep the blue um, masthead. Yeah. Um, which was distinctive, but um, uh, and so um, perhaps the front uh, wasn't as overwhelming as one might have hoped. But um, as a as a package, as an art, uh, as a piece of work itself, I I thought it worked. Um, it it, um, it it is got it's incredibly difficult to to do this kind of thing to suddenly transform yourself. And everyone feels unhappy about the first time you do it. it just imp- it's always a, a journey. And so the first iteration is probably not the, the one that will last too long. Okay. And just in terms of, obviously, you've, you've covered newspapers some, some time. Will The Guardian get a, in terms of print copies, will they get a, a sales bounce out of this for the first few yeah. weeks? Yes, they will. Oh, yeah. right. Okay. Well, 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 that's guess. And, I mean, more broadly, how does it compare to, I mean, I remember years ago, The Independent went through numerous revamps. Um, I mean, does it, does, it, does it compare favorably with other uh, revamps of national newspapers that, that, that you've seen in recent years? Well, I thought, I mean, each time um, a newspaper changes shape, mm. uh, I think that they do get a bounce. Uh, and I do think that they, um, they generally make a big fuss. Uh, at that moment and it is inevitable uh, that their first effort is not their best effort um, it is always the case that uh, as you move along other members of staff who've not necessarily taken part in the discussions suddenly say why don't we think of that why didn't we think of that mm. and also just the very 
fact of doing it day on day causes improvements. So mm. I thought, if you look back to when the Times went tabloid, mm. it was a much better Times two months later than it was on that first day. And the same was true for the Independent as well. So I think that's just in, in the nature of newspapers that they... Um, that when you do something cold at the beginning, you never quite get it right. Okay. Um, do, 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 I mean, the, Bel the Guardian, uh, chiefs at the Guardian obviously made a big thing about the uh, the Berliner. Do you think it's, it's a shame that the... I mean, obviously this is for, for cost purposes, but it's a shame that we don't see the, you know, the Berliner newsstands on our newsstands anymore then? Well, I mean, I think that the problem in the end, as everything is in our world nowadays, is money. Um, and I think that it was simply the case that it was expensive in the sense that you could only do it on certain sets of presses, that it, you couldn't switch from press to press, which you can with the tabloid. It's much easier to print. So it is a money saver in that sense. Mm. So I think the distinctiveness of the Berliner, which I liked very much, and I think um, generally Guardian readers liked, um, just really, in the end, fell foul of the of the problems that we have in newspaper economy. Okay. And just last couple of questions. I noticed, I saw the promotional campaign for the New Look Guardian on Friday, and they had the actress uh, Maxine Peake doing the voiceover, who's obviously uh, a northerner. Under under the new editor, under uh, Kath Viner, has the, the Guardian seems to have gone back to its Manchester roots in a way? I know they've got a, a Manchester hub now, haven't they? And they seem to be covering... Uh, news stories outside the capital in Manchester more than other national newspapers? That's a fair comment, is it? Well, I think they have made a terrific effort to ensure that they don't fall into the trap of becoming too London-centric, which they had for a long time. Um, so I think it was good to broaden themselves in the way that they have done. They've got an excellent uh, set of people um, uh, north of Watford, um, and thank goodness for that. Uh, and you know, Catherine herself comes from the north. Uh, it's no surprise, and uh, you know, and I think also she happens to be a woman. I think we've seen a gradually also mm. uh, a great feminist touch to the paper. So I think we we are beginning to cover both of those bases in a way that we didn't before. And that's something that was missing under Alan Rushbridge. Then was it? I mean, he, the Guardian then right. seemed to be all about global domination. Well, I, look, I, I, I'm not saying it was a great miss under Alan, um, and, you know, and I remain loyal to his memory uh, as editor. It's just simply the case that Catherine's brought this new um, burst of energy and thought to the paper. And um, I think there's, you know, if you look historically at The Guardian from the moment when it changed itself from the Manchester Guardian to The Guardian, it did grow into becoming a London-centric newspaper. Mm. And I think that's just one of those things that happened and, and Catherine thought about it more uh, and has changed the face. I mentioned, by the way, we, which um, I just must ex yeah. exaggerate, as I'm sure you will, yeah. that I am party-free yeah. because I write for the paper and have done since 1992. Okay. Last question, and I'll, I'll let you go. Out of all the um, national newspapers, is, is I mean, is, is, is a one who's doing particularly challenging and uh, impressive journalism at the moment, or is it a, of a much of a muchness? I mean, is there any... Uh, columnists or, or particular journalists that you're excited about at the moment? Uh, well, look, I mean, I think there's good in each of the papers, even those whose politics with which I disagree. Mm. I still think there's a bit of investigative journalism going on, even including in The Sun today and the NHS. I, you know, I, there is good and bad in all newspapers. I wouldn't want to pick 
out single columnists. Um, you know, I do follow certain people and um, I enjoy them. I also read people with whom I fundamentally disagree. Um, and I think that's important to do that. I think one of the great problems we face in all our newspapers is having too many columnists who agree with the line of the paper. And I think that's one, uh, you know, I think the Daily Mail is a terrific mm. piece of work, even though it's politics, I disagree with them. They're one uh, I think bad feature is that they don't have columnists who go against the grain. That's one of the great things The Guardian does do, and, mm. and I think The Times does it too, which is to run columns and columnists who don't agree with the general line of the paper. Mm. I think that's important in terms of the audience as well, to get a different perspective. Okay, right, fantastic. Thank you very much for joining me, Roy, that's great. All right. Cheers, bye-bye. Joined by Paul Frampton. Uh, thanks a million for joining us, uh, Paul. I guess most of the listeners will know who you are. But, I mean, what's interesting is you've started up this vlog this week. So, I guess my first question is, uh, why are you doing it? Hello, John. How are you? So, um, I am quite a uh, believer um, in building my social channels. So, um, sure. I have something like 14,000 Twitter followers and 7,000 followers on LinkedIn. Um, and I've been debating while I um, am on my gardening leave whether I should write a book. Uh, a couple of people have said to me, we like your view about the future and around disruption and technology and marketing converging. Um, so I was contemplating doing a book. But I, had, I had something in me was unsure about that. I felt like a very old-fashioned format. Yeah. Um, so um, I started to think about what's a slightly more modern, progressive way of doing it, um, and a vlog came to mind. Okay, so what's uh, you're going to do it, what, every every month to every six weeks, and what sort of stuff's going to be in the vlog then? So originally, my first thought was to talk about the things that I know best around marketing tech, but I plan to focus it a little bit uh, more around uh, the future of everything, so around how businesses are being disrupted um, and technology is disrupting everything through from leadership, uh, through the talent, uh, kind of through to marketing. So it's going to be a lot broader. Um, I deliberately want it to, to elevate it beyond just marketing and media um, because I always saw myself as uh, a kind of business owner um, or running a business that just happens to be in marketing services. Okay, and um, I noticed you've got nearly, I think, about 700 views. What's the what's the feedback been like so far then? Very positive, actually. Uh, I, I've been surprised at how many people think it's such a kind of new innovation. Yeah. Um, I, I kind of hadn't really thought of it in that way myself. Um, I, I, I connect and watch a few vlogs um, from various folk that I uh, kind of am interested in the B2B space, whether it be Gary Vayner or Simon Sinek uh, or kind of uh, Stephen that runs social chain. So it, it's a common format for me and my kids. Uh, my oldest kid is, a, is, a 15, mm. is 15 and watches a lot of vlogs. So it wasn't new to me, but the feedback's yeah. been very good. People have said, we're looking forward to it. It's not something that um, we've, we've seen leaders do before. Mm. Um, and yeah, it's got, uh, I mean, I only started promoting it on Tuesday with, with only a few posts and it's already got 60 subscribers. So yeah, hopefully it'll do well. Okay, I mean, that, that taps into a broader thing, which I was going to I mean, do you think that more broadly speaking, that the, the media and the advertising industry is quite conservative and stable? when it comes to communications I mean I might be wrong about this but you can't imagine one of the uh, chief execs of one of the big agency groups doing a vlog or a, a Martin Sorrell or a Michael Roth could you? I think that's probably true um, I, I think uh, so my answer would be in two parts I would say I think it would be very unlikely 
um, for that to happen. Um, I think that also it's actually it's wider than marketing and advertising. I think it's uh, leaders per se uh, not very comfortable with uh, social as a platform and uh, around a, a kind of platform where you have to be more authentic. They're used to uh, kind of things being kind of curated um, mm. and controlled. Um, so I think it, I think you need to be a certain type of leader and fairly brave to do it. So I don't expect. Uh, soul to, to do it anytime soon. I mean, I think he recently joined Twitter purely because uh, Jack, the founder, kind of had yeah. a bit of a bet with him. Yeah. Um, and the, uh, the new publicist, kind of gullible CEO, jumped on Twitter for, for about uh, 24 hours and was very engaged and active and then I think disappeared straight after that. So it takes time, it takes commitment. So I, I don't think many will, will follow suits unless they come from a slightly more uh, kind of progressive, independent kind of uh, sector. Okay. I mean, yeah, I was going on to say that. I mean, in your last role at Havas, would you, if you were to do a vlog there, but as an independent, would you have to run it by your bosses? Would they be happy you doing something like that or not? Or? No, no, I, I absolutely would have been able to do it. I mean, I, I, you'll know that I was pretty active on yeah. Uh, kind of social channels when I was there and I built a lot of the well I feel like I built a lot of the, the kind of profile and reputation for Havas through those channels so um, it was something that was supported uh, uh, but I, I guess I, I have the ability to be uh, more independent and talk more broadly uh, than I would have done uh, when I'm under the under the mm. kind of guise of, of a particular business, but I know I certainly would have been able to do it. it. Wouldn't have been something that I would have had to have got kind of approved. No. Okay, I mean it was, it was interesting you've launched it this week because there was a news item yesterday where YouTube has severed ties with the popular vlogger uh, Logan Paul after he posted a video showing the body of a, an apparent suicide victim in Japan, which is raising you know bringing to raising the question about whether. Uh, vloggers should have material pre-vetted like uh, broadcasters. I guess you'd say that should be done then, would you? Or? It's a difficult one. Um, the, the whole point of vlogging and YouTube is that it's democratised a mm. creator or someone with an opinion being able to put it live. Um, and uh, the volume of content that goes through uh, kind of YouTube is, is huge and significant. And that said, they uh, are also probably the world's kind of leader in artificial intelligence and machine learning. So they have a responsibility to do it. I don't think it could be, I don't think we can go back, I don't think you should go backwards and try and regulate it like TV or broadcasters regulated. I think there should be some regulation, particularly given a lot of their audiences are younger audiences uh, who mm. are obviously kind of very. Uh, can be very much affected by whatever they say, very much influenced by what they tell them to buy. So it definitely needs more regulation, but I would argue that there should be regulation for 2018, not for uh, kind of 1970. Okay, yeah, that's a good point. And finally, I'll let you go, I know you're busy. You're not planning to be the next Zoella then? You're not looking to, um, we're not going to see product placement in your vlogs or any advertising tie-ups if it becomes hugely popular then? Sadly, 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 I don't think I'm as attractive as Zoella. Um, I could try and be Alfie, but um, even Alfie's uh, quite an attractive lad. So, um, no, it, it's not intended uh, with any commercial design behind it. It's purely intended to uh, give an outlet and a perspective. Um, because people have asked me to talk about some of these things um, and, and seem to uh, kind of find value from kind of connecting to my community. So, um, it's purely, purely designed to do that. And I, I, I plan to listen to get feedback and then to pivot the content based on what people think is interesting because again I think that's another difference of what vlogging can allow that a blog maybe with comments does to an extent but vlogs blogs can kind of be pivoted and changed over time mm. a blog can but a book certainly once it's written 
you can edit and change it, but the minute it's published, it's published. Sure, and, and, and I guess a cynic might suggest that um, you're doing this with one eye on, on getting back into a full-time role. I mean, are you, are you looking to go back into take a, a full-time role at the moment or not? I mean, you mentioned the book there, so perhaps you're not looking to do something immediately. Uh, I, I, I am. Um, I'm exploring... Um, I'm exploring a number of different avenues. Um, I'm exploring avenues that are more disruptive um, and uh, kind of avenues that uh, kind of satisfy my design to kind of be connected to a broader kind of business narrative rather than just media. Um, so um, I guess I'm doing it partly because I want to change my narrative um, and partly because I want to talk about things that are beyond media and marketing because uh, I think a lot of the things mm. that uh, kind of affecting the world, society, leadership right now. Um, mm. They may have spiralled from kind of uh, digital kind of platforms and media owners, but they they ultimately kind of change and affect a much uh, kind of much bigger ecosystem. So um, I feel that I I should talk more kind of broadly and deeply mm. around it rather than just limit it to media. So we can take it from that that you're not going to be looking or you're not going to be taking a job, a senior job in a, a media agency. As your next job or in future, then? I, I'm not going to comment on that um, okay. specifically. Um, I plan to do something different um, yeah. and something that um, aligns with the values and the beliefs that I have about where the market is going. Um, and where that actually is uh, remains to be seen. I'm spending a lot of time talking to some interesting folk um, in the broader ecosystem to understand uh, kind of who's doing what and, and where the bet should be placed for the future. So all of it comes back to whoever has got an interesting kind of view of the future and a clear plan and a roadmap to get there um, will be the, the kind of the, the businesses that, are, that I find attractive. Okay, all right. Thanks a million for joining us, Paul. That's great. Thank you very much. No problems. Good to speak to you. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye. Hello and welcome to the main interview on the Media and Marketing Podcast, sponsored by MWW. And I'm delighted to be joined by Rachel Bristow, who is Director of Client Partnerships and Co- Collaboration at Sky Media, the commercial arm of Sky. Uh, thanks a million for joining um, me today, Rachel. For the listeners, can you just give us a potted history of your career today and where we are carrying out this podcast? So hi everyone, we are at um, Nova South, which is in Victoria, it's the Sky Media's London Touchdown office, Um, that's uh, our sort of brand new office, although it's uh, a year old now, but it's still uh, lovely and uh, spanking, so it's, um, so we're coming live from there. So I, as you say, are the Director of Client Partnerships and Collaboration, been at Sky now three and a half years. Yep. I started my career, crikey, this is going to make me sound so old, um, <laughs> in back in 1990 um, at Sainsbury's when I was part of their management training scheme and uh, went on to do store management and a series of roles in Sainsbury's through uh, into their business centre, so customer yep. services, l- local marketing. Sure. Uh, and my latter role was uh, running the direct marketing team that ran all the marketing communication off the transactional database um, that was Nectar. So I then moved across to Unilever, which was a bit of a shock going from sort of one brand into a portfolio. But I moved across um, as, uh, oh, I've got to think about my title now, Um, Director of um, Media Services. So looking after um, the direct and digital investments, and uh, all the marketing procurement, the call centre and marketing services. So quite a big role across uh, the portfolio of brands. Sure. 
Okay, no, that's fantastic. I was, I was pleased that I didn't have to slip all the way to uh, Austerley and come to Victoria, which isn't too far of a, a journey. Anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll get into more detail about your role at Sky and also your views on the broadcast landscape shortly. First off, just to kick off uh, with a few questions about current news stories. Obviously, uh, the gender pay gap, which is a news story which is still making a big splash. Um, obviously, there's been lots of hoo-ha about uh, gender pay inequality at the BBC. Uh, BBC China editor Carrie Gracie has obviously quit her role over pay inequality. Um, now, what struck me about this was, maybe I'm being cynical about this, um, is if she felt so passionately about the issue, I was surprised that she's, obviously she's quit her role as a China editor, but she has remained with the BBC. And she is paid around £135,000 a year, which um, doesn't strike me as, a, as, a, as too badly paid. I guess my question to you, Rachel, do you think these women generally, do you think women are right to kick up a fuss about pay inequality? And um, do you think there's much public sympathy for, for um, uh, the China editor? Because obviously if you think about nurses and people like public sector workers, they're paid nowhere near in the region of £135,000 a year. Yeah, so look, I think it's really interesting her decision to highlight it. And there's always a risk, I think, when you earn uh, a very high salary. Having said that, uh, I do think that actually if, you know, she's there with a colleague who's paid significantly more, it lends to the question of why, what are they doing or sort of what talent and skills do they have that the BBC would feel that Mm. that should be financially more recognised than her. So I think it's really interesting and it's the f- I think it's good that she is pointing out that there is an issue, but I think she's sort of torn through her love of the corporation. Yeah. But I think, and I guess in her role as a journalist, she's got to, you know, she feels compelled to speak out. Yeah. That's- but I, I think that it would be interesting to see what the BBC will do. I mean, at the moment it feels like they're going to do, they're saying there's no, there's no story yeah. there. Yeah, true. So, I mean, I guess the other thing that struck me as interesting, it's been uh, in the media world, it seems to have been confirmed to the BBC. We've not heard much about what's happening at Sky, for instance. I know you work on the advertising arm, but if you look at the, the on-screen talent at Sky, you look at people like Kay Burley and Sophie Ridge, I've not heard um, that um, journalists like that making demands for pay equality. Do you think there is uh, a similar division between male and female pay at, at Sky? I mean, and maybe if you can talk a bit about the um, advertising department, I mean, do you think if there was a, a male with a, um, uh, a, a similar job to you and you found out that he was paid uh, twice your salary, would you kick up a fuss? Yeah, of course I would kick up a fuss <laughs> because um, it's in my interest to kick up a fuss. But uh, because also I'd, I'd want to know why. So, look, I can't speak around the journalist for Sky because that's not the area sure. I work in. But I have, you know, interesting. I think this, the gender equality, the sort of equal pay debate has been around for quite a while. And I actually, as a, as a leader of a, a large group of people, specifically looked at what was happening because I think it's something that I don't believe you do it it happens consciously Mm. and I think some of it is when you've inherited teams you know there's a legacy you as a leader should check yeah and you know I think it's possibly easier in companies where there's pay bans and you know there's perhaps a bit more control um, as there are things like that in Sky that actually, I think, but I do think there's a leaders are duty bound to ensure that they are not being that discriminative for, mm. for no particular reason. So what you've looked into it at Sky, yeah, so, so what um, have you so done? So in then? my team, I can only speak for yeah, my no, team. Yeah, no, that's great. Uh, at, at 
absolutely. In fact, in, in some cases, women are paid more than men. Oh, so, really? But not okay. double. I mean, we're talking very, very small increments. But it's not, um, it, it's not these broad gaps that, that you get that you know been highlighted in the press yeah and just going back to my original point you said you would kick up a fuss so if you did find out that your male counterpart was paid twice as much would you kick up a fuss to the extent that you would threaten to resign or if so it- in, when you ask me that question my <laughs> heart says definitely i think my my mortgage payments my, <laughs> my head might say well you've got to be careful about that but i would like to think that i would certainly if i discovered that mm. would, would sort of fight my cause and be demanding to understand why. Okay, I think it will all come to light anyway because new rules mean that organisations with 250 or more staff must publish details of how much they are paying in salaries and bonuses um, by April this year. Okay, that's great to get that. Just um, next one, um, I've done these podcasts for a couple of months and sexual harassment keeps re- uh, keeps coming up. I, was, um, I interviewed Stephen Woodford, the CEO of the Advertising Association last week, who said that se- sexual harassment was going to be one of the big issues this year. So first of all, have you ex- any experience of sexual harassment at Sky? or in your previous role at Sainsbury's or Unilever? So in my career of 27 years, I haven't experienced it. Mm. Um, I have talked to people who have, um, but, you know, I'm sort of, I guess, fortunate enough never have to have come across that. I, I agree with Stephen. I think it's an it's going to be a big topic because I think suddenly the lid's off mm. and suddenly I think we... You know, every leader in any organisation, in any industry has a, you know, commitment, you know, sort of as a leader to ensure that that isn't happening. Mm. You know, I think it's, sure. it's appalling some of the stories that are coming out of the film industry, yeah. coming out of other industries that you, you know, even within government where you, you sort of assume these uh, establishments are, are run properly and run professionally and it has been quite shocking and I think really disappointing. I think the advertising industry is duty-bound to ensure that that is not one of the industries yeah. that is, is caught in that and that, that women f- feel they are, you know, that they're uncomfortable. Well, you know, women and men, actually, because men can be harassed as well, sure. but, um, you know, feel uncomfortable when they come to work. So just, just to be clear, you've not experienced it, but have you had staff come into you with complaints about other members of staff? Or so is that- I haven't had staff come to me. So, uh, so I'm a WACL member and we run, yeah. have run in the past speed mentoring sessions where you, know, you talk to uh, young women who work you know, in all sorts of different agencies um, across our communications industry. And they have, you know, I have been in some conversations where people have been made to feel very uncomfortable and have been sharing that experience and we, you know, then okay. talked about what to do about that. Okay. Uh, and just to change in tact, um, obviously we've got two female uh, chief execs at major broadcasters, which is fantastic news. We've got Carolyn McCall at ITV and Alex Mahern at Channel 4. Um, do you think it would be easy for a woman to get the top job at Sky? Yeah, I don't see any reason why not. Um I think it's about, it, you know, with everything, it's about the right person for the job. I think it's fantastic that uh, Alex and Carolyn are now leading, um, mm-hmm. you know, our two competitors. I think, you know, Carolyn has a fantastic reputation at EasyJet around um, driving women into senior positions or, okay. or looking at areas where, you know, yeah. like pilots, where there weren't many females and setting, you know, tough targets around that. 
I think, you know, they'll look within their organisations and decide, you know, Sky has already has women in leadership initiative. We have 40% of women are in senior positions. Mm. So that is something we are already tackling and, and moving tremendous strides with. And do you think, um, in terms of having a female chief executive of a big media company, what qualities do they bring which may be lacking in a male leader? Or, I guess, I'm trying to think that there's not been... Um, not many names that spring to mind, so it might be difficult to say on evidence. But are there obvious skills where men are lacking that female leaders of, of media organisations can bring to the table, do you think? So, I mean, look, we've had some great leaders of ITV and Channel 4, and um, I think that, you know, what they will bring is, you, you know, because they come from, you, you know, different perspectives and... Mm. Uh, different career experiences will bring you know further thoughts around how you take those two companies um, to greater success I think you know a balanced team of any leadership team you know be that you know through a diverse mix of um, ethnic backgrounds or gender you know creates more diverse conversations more Mm -hmm. diverse thinking and I think that's only set to increase with those two women being at the top Okay, right, okay, fantastic. Now let's dig into your own role, Head of um, Partnerships at Sky. Can you just, for the listeners, I'm sure many will will understand, but just a a very brief overview of what your job involves day-to-day then. So day-to-day, I'm looking at uh, the partnerships that we have um, with brands. So that incorporates uh, sponsorship, branded content, product placement, um, looking at how we create uh, creative solutions for these brands, that allow them to, you know, put their messages on our uh, platform in a way that you know that's engaging and that is outside of, um, you know, sort of the linear spot advertising. Okay. Uh, I think I think I well let, let's talk about addressable advertising because obviously that gets a lot of uh, column inches. Now Sky has obviously got AdSmart technology yeah. which allows uh, TV advertisers to personalise ads on linear TV, so ads can be targeted geographically and demographically. So there's been a lot of I don't hype the right word, a lot of talk about that in recent time. Which which brands are currently uh, using this technology then? So look, we have hundreds and hundreds okay. of brands uh, using this technology. Um, we, you know, from the likes of Jaguar, Mercedes, to mm. BlackRock Investments, to local window cleaners, um, kebab shops, etc. Okay. So, it, you know, there's a real plethora of um, advertisers who use the platform. Excitingly for us, around 70% of people, uh, brands or businesses who use AdSmart come back and use yep. it a second time. So, we feel it's, you know, really successful it's you know really giving lots of brands the opportunity to advertise on TV in a way they haven't before and to reach households in a way they haven't before. Okay, so yeah, you touched on a wide variety of brands then. So I mean, I can obviously, the, I can see the advantage for, for smaller brands, but if you're a, a big ticket advertiser, a big brand like a, a Tesco or I don't know, a BMW who you know want to get as much coverage as possible, why would they go down the, the targeted route then? manufacturers are really interesting because you know a car the the brand of car is you know they need to create a a desire for people to want to buy that car why would you buy a bmw versus a ford versus a jaguar versus a volvo sure and uh so i think you have to have that halo brand communication it often needs to be mass because it needs to you know through you know people 
um, mature and they need you know you need to create that ambition and that aspiration to own one of those cars but then I think you've got to, you've got a, a range of cars you want to sell to specific mm. people and those cars have different price points and AdSmart allows people you know allows a brand you know like BMW to mm. be able to hone their advertising for specific models it also around dealerships so okay. you know a different level of number of cars are sold in different parts of um, the country depending on the demographic etc and the affluence mm. and therefore they can take advantage of that so there's over a thousand attributes that you can use for AdSmart and that gives okay. you know a brand such an amazing targeting ability okay and it would work for other sort of big you know I'm thinking about airlines and retailers that they, they would you know Marks and Spencer Tesco they would use it too then would they yeah I would I would definitely say that we're up for okay. demonstrating that we can deliver for any brand okay so if I'm correct Virgin Media have signed up to AdSmart so you've got yeah. a re- revenue sharing but ITV and Channel 4 haven't so presumably the idea is to get all the commercial broadcasters signed up. How would that work then? Because if it, presumably you have to have a skybox then, don't you? Or how does that the... So we are in um, conversation, you know, we're always in conversation or continuous okay. conversation with ITV and Channel 4 about them having that technology. Yeah. And we are really open to them uh, being part of um, using AdSmart. So, it, you know, there's a number of options on how it can work. And I think, yes, it does have to have um, a skybox to be able to yeah. deliver, um, you know, or, you know, but, and that's why the deal with Virgin and actually putting it onto Now TV is really exciting for us because that widens the audience that we can reach. Okay. And do you think, I mean, Channel 4 and ITV, do you think a deal will get done this year or...? I would love to say that it will definitely. We, we really hope it will do. Okay. So, I mean, more broadly speaking, there seems to be a push from the broadcast, broadcasters to work more closely together to combat the rise of uh, the likes of Facebook and Google. I think there's a few examples. Sky, you're hosting the, the big TV uh, festival together with Channel 4 and ITV. Um, Sky and BT obviously signed a deal to share their channels on each other's platforms. Do you th- so do you, do you think there is a, uh, a general movement for the broadcasters to put aside their competitive day-to-day instincts and think there's um, another uh, bigger competitor out there who we need to take on in, in, in the shape of the digital giants? So we have, um, we've always collaborated because we've got Thinkbox and we're very proud of Thinkbox and actually Thinkbox is um, a driving force behind the TV festival. We are really excited about that festival because we think it's an opportunity to engage, you know, junior people in the industry and with clients around why TV is such, you know, a brilliant medium, Mm. the content, you know, the sort of the work that goes behind all the content, behind the scenes to make it such a, you know, a phenomenon and the fact that people actually do spend, you know, three and a half hours plus um, watching it every day. So okay. we're super excited about it because I think, you know, it's subject to a lot of what I would call fake headlines around, you know, in our industry yeah. around TV being dead. You know, if, you know, the common person is still, you know, their linear viewing, their VOD viewing is alive and kicking. And I think it's, you know, incumbent on us as the broadcast to ensure that our industry is fully aware of that. But we want to do it in a really engaging way and we're excited to be able to offer agency and client 
person now the chance to come to this festival and hear from some great speakers. When is the when is the festival then? So the festival is uh, the eighth and 9th of February in Blackwood Forest. Okay, I'll try and get along to that. Okay, so I mean, can you just talk more broadly about the the sponsorship market? I mean, is is that buoyant at the moment? And the other thing I was going to ask you, obviously, after all the um, controversy about YouTube and brand safety. Are you having conversations with brands who st- say they're still concerned about um, digital programmatic as an advertising format and um, digital channels being a safe environment for brands? And uh, are you seeing any balance of people saying, we don't want to go there, but we, 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 you know, we think TV is a safer environment? Let me touch on the point you've just mentioned. Yes, we are definitely seeing uh, brands invest more in broadcast of odd. And uh, because I think it, it has all the safety net that you don't have Mm. with digital VOD and I think you know brands really have to make a choice in this day and age as to where they want to ensure you know their messages are put you know what content it's put against and I think it's easy to forget all the regulation that exists with TV and that you know and actually how that helps you know ensure that a brand is put alongside you know safe trusted uh, content Mm. and we've made a big you know, play around that to both agencies and to clients, and we are seeing the benefit of that. Okay. Oh, go on, now you're gone. No, I was going to say, in terms of sponsorship, um, yes, for us, the the market is uh, buoyant. Again, I can't talk um, for Mm. anyone else, but, you know, we've done some fantastic deals recently. We've um, signed up Vauxhall uh, to sponsor Sky Cinema and Channel 5 movies, Tui, you may have seen, is um, our Sky One sponsor, and we continue with our really successful Volvo Sky Atlantic partnership. So, for us, it's about you know, responsibility. You've got to balance the, the long and the short term, and making sure that you know you're looking, you know, long term around. Have you got you know the right uh, deals in place, the right brands lined up, mm. um, and then you've got to ensure that you're you're out in the market selling. You know, perhaps more short-term opportunities, mm. but the team have done a really fantastic job, so I'm, re- I'm really pleased with where we are there. And can you give me any names of any brands that have, have said they've got concerned about, um, you know, advertising on digital channels and want to move across, or is it just just a few conversations you had, or is there, there's not examples of big name brands saying that they want to shift to TV? No, look, I think you, mm. you know, you've seen a number of brands um, caught in some of the uh, press sure. reports sure. Um, and press studies. I think those mm. brands inevitably have uh, wished they hadn't been mm. you know exposed in s- such ways and I think you know a lot of them are having to look at kind of some of the processes mm. they have in place and the checks and balances they have in order to ensure that they're happy with that you know where their content is put okay fantastic and what in terms of if, if I'm looking for trends in 2018 in the TV market is there anything you're particularly um, excited about Rachel or what, what, what should listeners be looking out for this year so I think from a um, content point of view I think that um, you know you'll start you'll see you'll continue to see some brilliant stuff on TV I think it's you mm-hmm. know um, competing with uh, cinema and with film you know with film and you see, you can see that in the Globe and uh, Golden Global Awards, where yeah. you, you know TV series are w- are winning that recognition, and I think we continue on that on making that experience, you know, as a Sky customer, fantastic. I think VR, virtual reality, will continue to be an area that people are exploring and how that comes to life for the consumer and what the consumer's reaction is. 
Um, you know, as is experimenting with 4K, I think, you know, mm. in order to deliver a 4K experience, you know, you've got to, you've got to change a lot of technical equipment. It's not, it's not very easy, but it's yeah. an area, again, that we are looking to dip our toe continually in to learn okay. about. I think um, in terms of media, I think, look, you know, um, the medium is strong. I think we would all like to see, you know, great partnerships, great demonstration of delivering for brands and I think you know that's set to continue. Okay fantastic and just um, last couple of questions so you're obviously uh, eight years I think at uh, Unilever uh, latterly as VP and I don't fully understand this job title so I'm going to, <laughs> going to ask, you, ask you to explain it to me latterly as VP global media de- media data and, al- and analysis have I read that perhaps I've read yes, that incorrectly? Yes you have no, it's Can, media data what, analysis. What does that mean in, in so, layman language? Um, you know, so it's no uh, hidden fact that Unilever spends about three billion euros on across the the globe on mm-hmm. um, uh, media, yep. and that you know even just trying to analyse that and understand that and and look at the decisions of where investment goes across what categories across what products within those categories is a massive task. So one of the jobs, um, and we didn't hold all our data, you know, and we, mm. Unilever didn't hold all their data internally. And I led um, a project that built um, a system that uh, allowed people to be able to check in seconds where investment was and that we held all of that data and all of that knowledge okay. so that we could really challenge internally kind of where where investment was going okay and uh it'd be remiss not to mention the hoo-ha about dove last year i think it was the end of last year when unilever was forced to apologize after accusations of racism in a series of facebook ads that it, were, it said were designed to celebrate the diversity of real beauty uh i'm trying to think of the ads the ad showed a, a black woman removing a brown t-shirt revealing a white woman in a white t-shirt underneath which led to an outcry on social media about black skin being washed away into white do you think um sort of marketing mishaps and if you can maybe it's a bit more than mishap, uh, more than a mishap do you think it's inevitable that it's going to happen just because of the sheer size of a company like Unilever or do you think they have um, they've had too many problems with um, you know marketing mishaps people's expectation of Unilever is very high because mm. it's a big impactful business and people look to it as for marketing excellence I think that you know Dove is there to challenge um, some of the status quo and you know, it's done some brilliant campaigns. I think that I didn't see it uh, in that light, nor do I think it would have been designed in that light. No. Um, because I, you know, I know the brand and I, I know the, some of the people who work in that brand. It's about often shining lights in areas where, you know, they think there needs to be big discussion. So, you know, around female confidence, um, you know, sure. and they do some brilliant stuff. I think some of it is inevitably around the expectation of Unilever. Okay, right, that's fantastic. And finally, I'm just going to ask you the last question. Uh, Unilever, Sainsbury's and then Sky. So what, what learnings did you get from Sainsbury's and Unilever, which has put you in good stead at Sky then? And, and is media, I've, I've put down on my question, is media a, a sexier industry than um, retail and consumer goods or not? Oh, definitely. So media is great fun. I have a really, really good time. Um, I love my job. I'm very lucky. What have I learned in those two companies? Um, leadership, definitely. Yep. So I've grown, you know, grew up in Sainsbury's, and uh, you know, 15 years experience. Really enjoyed it. Did a um, a number of different roles that 
taught me to be a leader. I think I then honed those skills, made some big decisions uh, in Unilever, you know, and led some significant projects. I think the global experience was really good in Unilever. It teaches you just how different it is, you know, you sort of how you have to be when you're dealing with different countries and working with the likes of China, India and South America. Yeah. And But I've, you know, I love uh, my UK focused role in Sky. It's, it's great fun. Media is, you know, a really fun industry. Okay, well, leave it there. Media, media is a really fun industry. Right, thank you very much, Rachel. And uh, tune in next week for the Media and Marketing Podcast.